Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello guys, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you're all doing well. I have an absolutely great guest for you today. I have Helen Hall. Helen is a running coach, or at least that's how I'm going to describe her for the purpose of this intro and this podcast, because she is much more than that, but... She does, we did talk a lot about running today and she has written a book on running, her coaching, how she coaches running and her philosophy around it. That's called Even With Your Shoes On. I do recommend that to a lot of people. We spoke a lot about running, we spoke about feet, we spoke about assessment. Helen has access or actually owns one of the best gait analysis tools, technology in the world. So it's really interesting to get kind of the views and opinions from someone who has such a great eye for coaching movement and really thinks about awareness and noticing things so much but then at the same time has access to this tech so I think she's learned a lot from that and hopefully can teach us a lot from that as well. She's also learned under Gary Ward Anatomy and Motion and I have as well so we have that's actually where I first came across Helen and I've been following her kind of from a distance ever since for the last few years and I think we had a really good chat around running feet assessment loads of other things along the way. If it feels like at some stage in the podcast like we kind of bounced from one topic to another. It's probably because we actually lost a bit of the audio or a couple of points through the podcast, the audio was just all kind of scrambled up. So I had to clip out some parts. So in a couple of parts, it might not run as seamlessly from one topic to the next. Just remember that that's what's happened there. So great podcast. I think it, I actually think it gets better and better as we go along and I learned a lot from it as well. So remember to click like and click share that really helps i really appreciate the five star reviews and people that are following us on spotify and anyone who shares an episode that honestly means the world to us so please keep doing that and for now here is helen hall helen i'm going to ask you to maybe give a bit of an intro it can be as long or short as you want i suppose but just a little bit of a a background as to who you are what you do and um, you're obviously sitting in your lovely clinic i think are you or do you call it a clinic or what do you call your workspace? I, I do. I do, call, I do call it a clinic. And I had a, a lovely uh, New Zealand lady who walked in through the door and I can't do accents. And she said, noise shared. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, oh um, OK. Uh, yeah, it's fair enough. It is a, uh, a Finnish log cabin. Um, but it's also a nice shed. If you want to call it a shed, it's a shed. It's my clinic. Um, and actually, I made a little video for, I was presenting to some uh, Japanese Alexander Technique um, students uh, about a month ago. And they they wanted to see the clinic. So I made a little video of uh, all of the cameras and Doris, who I'm sat next to, um, but they were there, they were in situ. So uh, it probably doesn't work for a podcast where perhaps the visuals aren't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm sat in the space uh, that keeps me happy and busy uh, and um, highly engaged, I would say. It's mm-hmm. constantly exploring and constantly learning uh, because Doris will show me stuff that I can't see with my eyes. And I think, whoa, okay, where do we go here? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm in my clinic. That was a long answer for a very short question. <laughs> Explain to people who Doris is. Oh, Doris. So Doris is, um, let me introduce Doris, who is the most advanced gait analysis uh, tech in the world. And there are only four in the world. Mm-hmm. And I have um, 
I have one. I was the third by the uh, only, I, I should have been second, but they delivered to Germany just before me. Um, I should have been the one uh, in my heart. I was the one after Nike. Uh, yeah. Nike was the prototype and then it was me, but they just, I just, on their schedule of deliveries, I came after the German one because it's German technology. So they delivered next door first and then they popped over to the UK, the mm. wonderful people from Deers. And I call, I'm so old that I call her Doris because the company is Deers and it, it, it made me happy. <laughs> but unless you're older, unless you're old and you know Doris Day, it won't make any, it won't make any sense, but she's called Doris and uh, she is uh, a quarter of a ton of treadmill uh, with a force plate integrated. So I can measure simultaneously uh, your three-dimensional spine uh, movements, your three-dimensional pelvic movements, um, just with three stickers. I can go all out uh, along with the, um, the foot plate, uh, the foot forces um, through the plate. Uh, I can go all out and put 35 stickers on you and measure any angle you fancy. Mm -hmm. um, but that takes time. So my basic is the, the three stickers. And uh, she would just give me endless amounts of information just from those three stickers. Mm -hmm. uh, she does have limitations, though. She is um, more accurate than an X-ray up to 30 kilometers an hour. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens after 30? Uh, she can't go any faster than 30 kilometers an hour, but oh, okay. nobody's made it. Nobody's made it anywhere near. Okay. So we're safe in the knowledge that Doris, uh, her PB is 21 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think in any faster, we need a crash mat just in case somebody pings off the end. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. um, so whilst there are limitations with treadmills before anybody starts on the treadmill lark, uh, uh, we we understand the limitations of a treadmill. Mm -hmm. However, we're comparing like with like, and we're looking for change instantly in clinic. So mm -hmm. we're comparing like with like, and then if it feels better in here, it feels infinitely more um, better out in the real world. So um, so it's it's short of having a film set with cameras following equidistant as you run along. Mm -hmm. It is um, a an amazing solution. Yeah, yeah, which fills my clinic. That's great. That's great. What, um, so you, I don't know how would you, you would classify yourself or whatever. I know you're, I know you're a running coach, but that might be just putting you into a, a box then. So what, what would you call yourself and how long have you been doing this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, uh, I call myself Helen Hall and that's not to be difficult. It's just I struggle. I hate it when people ask me, what are you? And I think, I, I don't know. I'm Helen Hall. I'm, uh, ask me uh, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I explore movement. Um, I, as one of my dear friends and clients, uh, he, I work with him closely, a footballer. He says, uh, better never stops. So we're continually looking for better uh, in movement. And whilst uh, I do, I, I coach running, but it's such a weird thing because I, I don't coach running. I don't express uh, a way to run. Mm -hmm. I, I, I work with wondering why somebody moves in that way. 
and wondering if we can find uh, better for them, be that uh, be more fluid, more comfortable, more enjoyable, faster, um, all the way through from, uh, you know, people who just want to get off the couch, uh, uh, all the way through to elite athletes uh, and world champions. (laughs) So uh, we run the gamut of movement. Um, My passion is running. Mm. Uh, I have done Ironman. I've done eight Ironmans, uh, but I, I hate the swimming bit. So I meant to call myself a triathlete, but but I I can't because I hate the swim um, and I enjoy pootling on a bike. Uh, I don't particularly like time trialing on a bike, uh, but I do love cycling. But I my my love is if you ask me to go for a run, I, I'm yours a- anytime, anywhere, anywhere. I'm yours for the run. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I ended up writing a book about running. Uh, but I, but it's from the, the angle of not telling you how to, more uh, exploring why it doesn't feel like you want it to feel. Yeah. After all, London Marathon, there are 42,000 perhaps starters. Let's call it 40,000 finishers. They all look different. So for me, it, it, it behoves to... Uh, as nodding at the amazingness of the human body uh, without being prescriptive because everybody is managing it uh, Mm -hmm. in all their different myriad of ways. So there can't possibly be a way, uh, Mm -hmm. but there there may be ways to make it feel better. Yeah, Yeah, that's an interesting one because I suppose, I think a lot of people with, with tech that they can measure stuff it might be not as advanced as yours but they might start to try to get everyone to start to look the same so okay this is the knee lift that we want this is the stride length or whatever so like how how do you then use that tech to it's almost like there's a paradox here where it's like okay i i I have this super advanced tech but then i'm just kind of exploring at the same time um and I usually see that people fall into kind of one end of the spectrum or the other. So how do you how do you kind of think about that and how do you use that tech to not just put people into a box then? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I was uh, being taught by Dan Enfield, who was the um, inventor of the tri-bike, uh, he's an entrepreneur and inventor of quite a few things, actually, and he was my bike fitting instructor. And he, he said... Uh, the winner of triathlon is uh, the one who can whisper the loudest. And I just thought that was so wonderful because that's what you see in all great movement. When you see a great forehand, you even if you don't play tennis, you know it, that was a great shot. Uh, when you see Michael Jordan, you know, shoot for the basket and you just know it's going to go in, even though you may never have... Uh, got a ball through the hoop yourself um, ever it is when you see great movement it looks fluid and seamless and elegant and it just looks right just looks right and so we aspire to this elegance and fluidity and fluentness of movement without uh 
looking for uh, a way because we don't even know how they found the way. Uh, what felt good in their system may feel not so good in somebody else's system because of their history of movement development and injuries. So it's it's that the, the gloriousness of watching David Radisha at the 2012 800 metres, which just, it gives me tingles even to think about it. Uh, or Bikila te teasing Mo Farah uh, on that infamous North Run where the com commentators were just going mad that Mo was, was on his tail and he was going to win. And, and Bikila was totally, easily, obviously just teasing him. And every time Mo got close, he just pulled away. It was so effortless and graceful. And at the end, he was being interviewed within moments of crossing the line. And he was just chatting with the uh, presenter there. And, you know, Mo, bless him, was crossing the line, heaving for air, gasping for air. So it's that that fluidity that uh, that you are looking for in the context of that person. So it's always in the context of that person. So you're comparing, you're looking at how they move. So what I do is I measure them standing still, walking, running, and depending on uh, their athleticism, um, I might. Uh, explore uh, walking barefoot, walking briskly with shoes on, running easy with whatever it is they normally train in. Uh, and then um, depending on how long they're here for, and the minimum is five hours. So that's the minimum I demand for exploration of movement. Uh, so we might go through some paces and see what changes, because essentially nothing, Nothing should stay the same between uh, standing still walking and running. And then once running, what changes as the speed goes up? Because what we really want to see is it's just the stride length. The body opens up rather than any dramatic change between running easy and running fast uh, because it's the same body that you're bringing with you. So uh, it's often quite interesting what happens when people are running fast and things all smooth out because speed heights need, but they're not able to run balls out continually because, you know, people get injured doing that. So it's what's happening in the lower gears that makes that person maybe uh, predisposed to a, a cycle of injuries. So we use the data not to um, attain uh, a certain prescriptive cadence or stride length uh, or angles. We just want more of the body engaged in perhaps better symmetry. Um, and yes, <laughs> to uh, acknowledge all the people who are passionate about asymmetry yes even our brains are asymmetrical but we have four limbs I'm talking about limb uh, symmetry when running without um, uh, holding anything asymmetrical so as a for instance uh, you know you can have a pole vaulter running on the treadmill and 
their their job is running with a pole in their hands. So this is going to be different. You're going to have less movement in the upper body because you can't have the counter rotation or the spiraling through the upper body uh, in the same way you would if you weren't holding a pole. Uh, And you're going to have more pelvic rotation as a result because you've fettered the movement somewhere. So it's, it's wondering why somebody is moving Uh, with more movement somewhere, less movement somewhere else, and trying to figure out why that might be so that we can bring more body to the party to help out. How do we figure out, okay, it's the left arm is the problem, or it's not the right big toe that the problem is, or anything else, or is is that just something that we just need to tinker with, and that's why you actually need time with people to play around with something, have a look, play around with something else, have a look. Or can we can we ever really know, okay, that was the problem? Or does it even matter? Maybe it's just like, okay, it doesn't matter if that's the real cause, but I'm just going to get it moving and maybe it just comes back into the hole again. Or, um, how, do you, how do you even approach answering that question? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a, um, we start. The, the way to answer the question both, Uh, literally with the person in front of you and with the question that you've just posed is to start. We do have to answer the question. Uh, My set, we just, we can't just be standing around in the dark uh, and hoping for the best. I do feel we need to answer the question as best we can with the knowledge that we have currently, which of course is, is changing all the time. I'm learning all the time. Uh, I am, and Doris keeps me uh, clear. She keeps me from telling myself stories about what might be happening. Uh, because when you, when you change something, so I go on a slight tangent, I can feel myself go there not right now. So we, we tangential, we go off on a tangent just slightly. If I uh, change something um, in a person's body by asking them to move in a novel way, then they might feel better simply because it's a novel uh, movement for them. And and that feels exciting within their body. But I'll measure, I'll always measure. And hear, okay, what, what's that just given us? And it might be, so I'll give an example. Uh, so the problem was sciatica. Uh, the MRI had shown uh, disderangements. Uh, on several levels in the lower um, back, uh, L4, L5, L5S1. Uh, So there was a, these asymmetry was a clear um, avoidance of the area. So the pelvis had shifted away from uh, the direction that the disc had um, uh, prolapsed to or the disc nucleus had bulged towards. And so we were using some movements to open uh, the, the spine and then help to send the pelvis in the other direction, uh, away to, so towards uh, the sciatica, uh, but having opened up uh, the space so that the body could do that because staying uh, bowed away from uh, the disarrangement was causing all sorts of grief. So coming back towards center. And she felt great. 
doing that, it, it gave the area, so say the disc derangement was to the left uh, and it was a right hip uh, uh, discomfort pain, uh, she felt better. And then I measure and Doris tells me that the pelvis is even more shifted. Mm-hmm. So she'd had the sense of, oh, this, this, is, this feels better, it's different. But there was, you know, X amount more millimeters, more shift. And you think, okay, no, the brain is saying, no, I'm not ready to go. Yes, that's where we want to head towards, but we can't go the direct route. We've got to go circling around. So so Doris keeps me um, very safe so that uh, new and great doesn't get mistaken for, oh, actually, you're, you're going to feel great for a little bit and then you're just going to feel bad again. Uh, so we, we don't, that, that doesn't happen. Um, and uh, so now I've, I've, I've digressed so much, I've lost where I was going. So I was giving an example. I really like that. Because I think, say, say you have someone with, I actually see this all the time where you have someone with uh, upper back pain, upper back problems or something like that, which just for example, and someone gives them a physio or something, tells them, okay, just squeeze your shoulder blades together, walk with your chest up and keep your shoulder blades squeezed together, which I think is maybe one of the worst pieces of advice you could ever give anyone because now you're just increasing tension and taking away movement. But almost everyone will feel, quote unquote, like better just because they feel different in that time, but you're now starting to maybe layer on more compensations or cause more problems and more tension. So I like the way you say that Doris keeps you honest in that way, because it's, it's probably not that hard to make someone feel better by just making them feel different in the moment by shifting tension to another area, but it doesn't mean it's a good strategy in the long run. Yeah. Yes, and I remember where I was going. So it was finding out uh, the why. Um, so we can, uh, and it is, it, it, I find it's about hypothesizing. So it, it, there's a continual thought process and you're, you're sifting through, well, is it, is it this? So you have their injury history. Um, you have their, hopefully their movement development history, which is, uh, I find, increasingly relevant the more I understand um, movement development, which is the origins of how we get our joint mechanics in the first place. Uh, And it is, um, if if my life's work is to uh, stop um, infant development being monopolised by infants, and for the world to see that this is actually movement development that's with us our entire lives. If that's the, the message that I have to keep saying my entire life until paediatricians and midwives don't have the monopoly on it, then, I, then I'm, I'll just keep doing that. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is not just because the infants get to do the movement development first does not mean it is infant development. It is movement development. It is how we get to move and be the way we are. It is our movement. It is our acuity. It becomes the way we think, uh, the way we are, our isms, our characters, and our movement. And it is with us our entire lives. And uh, we can use movement development. Uh, I call them pieces of Lego 
even when the pieces of Lego are organized, we can use them to get what we want. Anyway, I digress. We need just, I need to finish my thought processes on the left, say the left arm that isn't moving. So we can surmise that we can have a healthy theoretical um, thought process, which will either get thrown out with the dishwater or, ah, yes, we're onto something. If, say, for instance, uh, there was a left wrist uh, fracture age four and uh, just at that time it, it's just after any you know crawling around on hands and feet happens so they don't get to really go back to that space and use the arm in the same way as they had uh, and maybe um, a little bit of uh, neuronal networking to that arm got a bit lost in the wash and uh, that person just, you know, were right-handed. It didn't really matter, and they're young, and so they just crack on and don't even realize that uh, their left arm isn't moving in that same way. Mm-hmm. And then you can give it some movement, give it some wrist mechanics, uh, give it something to do, and suddenly it, it bursts into life. Yeah. And you think, oh, okay, well, that's uh, a probable in the absence of anything else, probable hypothesis confirmation. And maybe it wakes it up a little bit, but not enough. Then making it move, in my experience, making it move can help to a degree. Uh, my r and I invented the Lemony, uh, which is... Uh, uh, I have prototype number two here. So Lemni, uh, which moves in the form of a lemniscate, which is the figure of eight on its side. And R&D was branches and sticks in the woods. Different lengths. What could I do with the runner I was with to help their arms understand what to do to be helpful without frontal cortex thinking? And I think that's where things become problematic. If the person is having to think about what to do, this isn't coming from uh, the foundations of movement that we know. So there are some things we know and and a lot we don't know. And however much we, we, in the words of Donna Rumsfeld, we, we don't even know what we don't know yet. So... But there, we do know some stuff. And if our foundations of movement uh, have gaps in them, you can think about something uh, and say, say it's a left arm movement <laughs> for the sake of argument. We can think about that left arm, but because it's in the frontal cortex, we're thinking about it using our frontal cortex but the foundation of the movement isn't in the brainstem and or isn't in the basal ganglia where we hold up our, our, motor, our motor patterns, then you're going to always have to think about it. It might become a habit. It's possible that it could become a habit, but because the brain thinks in patterns, it's going to, ha- it's going to take a very, very long time. And in that first in the first instances, when that person is seeking better, trying to get away from an injury cycle, they can't be thinking about that all the time. Mm. 
they it's just not possible. Uh, as soon as they're thinking about crossing the road, they're not thinking about that. They can't think of two things at the same time. So it's noticing what happens when a body isn't thinking about it, uh, noticing what happens when a body is thinking about it, to then know where next to go. Because if they can only do something when they're thinking about it, and then it instantly drops the minute the minute they're not thinking about it, then we we can, I feel, quite safely go and explore maybe not an old injury in terms of joint mechanics, but maybe go and explore um, the movement in terms of a developmental uh, organization. So whether or not the brain has the neuronal network to that movement, what is that movement? Uh, what um, piece of Lego would it be helpful to actually describe what I mean by Lego? I wonder. Uh, the um, Shall I do that story now? Would that help? I don't know what story, so it's up to you. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so if we imagine we, it's my favorite story. So uh, let's just do it. If we imagine we're born as a bit of a blob, which we are, uh, and humans are a blob-like for really quite a long time compared to all other mammals. Uh, and we're in the basement and there are, there's a box, an empty box, and there are 30 odd pieces of Lego seemingly random scattered uh, on the floor of the basement. And the game that the infant has to play is to pick up these pieces of Lego and get to know them so well that they know the nobles, the shape, the size, and the color. When they know all of that information, the piece of Lego goes in the block, in the box. And of course, it's not, they're not uh, randomly scattered uh, along the basement. They're DNA-driven timelined, uh, arranged away from the box. And the infant gets to play with a few at the same time. Uh, and of course, the knobbly bits are the reflex. So this is uh, movement development in terms of uh, the, um, people call them uh, primitive reflexes, primary reflexes. Uh, they call them all sorts of things. There's lots of names. And, and essentially, it is uh, a level of automaticity as a result of a sensory stimulation that travels to the brain and results in a movement. And the infant plays with these. And of course, because there's not much going on in the blob at the, at the very beginning, they can only get the sense of the knobbly bit because it's the most obvious bit. So the reflex is the knobbly bit. And then they play with it so much that the level of automaticity starts to disintegrate, starts to um, disappear. So then uh, if somebody strokes their cheek, they're not forever drawn to turning their head, dipping their chin and starting rooting for the nipple because we can't have it until our loved ones. Uh, when we marry them, for instance, topically, uh, we stroke their cheek and they start rooting. We can't have that, but we need the initial movement. So we have the pattern, but we're not um, bound to that pattern for the rest of our lives. And we have other options. So the... The, the infant plays with uh, a few pieces of Lego and the more 
they the level of automaticity of movement that uh, happens, the more movement that happens, the these the strength in the musculature um, occurs. Uh, the joint mechanics start to evolve through the movement. And now the input will start to put more and more pieces of Lego together to create ever more complex shapes. And uh, to cut a very long story short, that takes about seven years. By the time the uh, child is seven, all of the pieces of Lego hopefully are in the box uh, and the lid is on and we have uh, the, the picture of human movement development. But it's not just movement, it is our acuity as well. It, and it's our vestibular system, uh, our balance, our ability to be upright, of course, in the field of gravity, not just moving. And so then the, the infant has got, or the, the, the person now has got enough movement that they can clamber up the stairs and see this amazing view uh, because now they can play in the first floor with um, uh, walking, crawling, walking, running, skipping, galloping, uh, climbing, uh, uh, somebody said wrestling, okay, fair enough, wrestling, throwing, some form of hand-eye coordination, some kind of foot-eye coordination. And they, and they're, all of these patterns are held in the basal ganglia halfway up the building. But they are dependent on what pieces of Lego are in the box in the basement. Mm -hmm. And then on top of those um, movement patterns that are available halfway up the building, the penthouse suite starts to learn all about skilled movement uh, and uh, the rules of the game and, you know, the uh, the finesse of the pointy toe, just about as you're going to go into your um, uh, double flip in gymnastics or whatever it might be. So we have these layers of skill, but of course, they're all born from the same pieces of Lego that we all are born with. Uh, that are, are way down in the basement. So is that left arm not moving because it got injured at some point, doesn't really matter what age, and never came back into the fray because it actually didn't um, have the right kind of rehab or indeed any rehab? Or is it because uh, that it never moved? It just happened to have got injured, but actually it was part of a movement development story even prior to that. So then you start to have conversations with the person in front of you about how they always looked. So as a, as a clear, for instance, I had an amputee. Um, so he had no uh, left arm below the elbow. And so he wanted, he was a triathlete and, and wanted more, which is wonderful. So we're always looking, better never stops. And uh, he, he wanted more. And it was, it was obvious that he was moving in a way that didn't make actually any sense that it was as a result of his accident. He, he had paraglided into uh, power lines and the grip on the paraglider uh, had made the, the arm uh, get stuck in this flex position. So the only way uh, they decided that the best thing to do would just be to amputate. Mm -hmm. But he was moving in a way that didn't make sense that it was because he didn't have um, a full left arm. And luckily his wife was with him. And I said, this makes no sense. I, I think that the way you're moving uh, stems from even before your accident. And, oh, hello, here's Parker. Yeah. 
<laughs> just arrived. That's the giant schnauzer. He's gone to his sofa. And um, uh, yes, so it be, before uh, the accident, and sure enough, uh, his wife was there showing me pictures of him standing in crowds and he was, you know, he had his shoulder tilted. He was always, he was always like this. So, so then it was easy to help because it, it was like his amputation was a red herring, a complete red herring. And by organizing something that uh, was present even before he was 11, uh, we could approach from a movement development point of view and gain more instantly. Yeah. I think I think the um, the reflexes is an interesting one. Like you, you still you, you you will see you can look for people whose reflexes are they're still moving. Say like the plantar reflex or something like that. Like they're still always if you still touch their foot like they're or their foot just always is is gripping like that all of the time as an adult and that just never fully developed for whatever reason. Usually it's because well aside from some neural thing. Usually it's because of a lack of movement when they were when they were younger they weren't exposed to enough movement in, an, in a variety of ways but i think the strength i think the strength work tops up i think it applies to most sports the strength work tops up really well for people who have are very skilled in the sport already so it seems to transfer across very well to them you see it in the jump world you see it in people who can get really strong but they don't have the skill of being able to jump and dunk a basketball already or like they haven't don't have that in the bank then the strength work doesn't apply because it's like the body doesn't know how to use it and i think running is very very similar it's the muscle sequencing you can effectively get stronger with no more training just instantly get effectively stronger just with um improved muscle sequencing so it's uh, and you can't do that with thought <laughs> you've got to figure out why um something is not firing um in the way it should uh the i recently measured somebody uh so generally speaking, when I'm measuring their barefoot, they'll, they'll walk probably about half a kilometer slower unshod than when they're shod. So when I'm measuring barefoot uh, and then switching to um, walking with shoes on, I'll increase the speed and it'll be effectively in their, in their system, it will feel the same. And uh, there was a, a lady who was, um, we, we know we've had the same uh, anatomy motion training that we have about 0.65 to 0.8 of a second on each foot when we walk. And that reduces to 0.2 to 0.3 of a second when we run. And so there's not enough time to think about anything because it's already happened and it's all happened so fast. So when you measure quadruple figures on somebody walking barefoot so one over one second so 1150 milliseconds on one foot and 1200 milliseconds on the other foot and they have a, an awareness of um uh moving slower than everybody else uh and actually they think they're a bit of a slow walker, um, but they're a little bit of a slow runner. 
But when you go from a walk to a run, most people roughly will double their uh, comfortable walking to comfortable running. It's a rule of thumb. It's just my start point um, on the treadmill. And this person went from uh, 1.8 kilometers an hour walking to seven kilometers an hour running. And so the seven kilometers an hour is still uh, on the slower side. Um, it is, it's a, a very easy, um, it's either an incredibly fast walk. I, I, my legs are too short to walk that fast. I would have to break into a run. Um, and so she was over three times faster, nearly four times faster uh, running than when she was walking. And the, the, the reason I give this example is she was wobbly. She didn't even know she was wobbly when she walked. All she knew was that she walked really slowly. And uh, her, you could see the wobble in her feet and she was seeking information, constantly seeking, where is the, I'm going really carefully, where is the ground, where is the ground? I'm telling the story describing how it looked. But she was slowly making her way from heel to toe. And then when she was running, she was a forefoot runner. And of course, the impact, she gets more information through uh, the forefoot because we we have the tips of our fingers and the tips of our toes uh, are made from the same material uh, embryonically uh, that forms the tips of our um, tongue, nose, nipples, genitals. So this super sensitive stuff. And then it gradually gets um, less and less sensitive, but still sensitive, but towards the heel least sensitive because we we want to be able to land on our heel, uh, (laughs) hopefully with one foot sitting in contact with the ground. So we have our body mass um, load and we roll through the foot, but it doesn't hurt. And so she was spending an an extraordinary, you know, Doris PB. I'd never, I'd never measured that length of time in contact with the ground ever. And I have got, um, I filled a hard drive, and Germany couldn't believe it. And I, at that point, I had three and a half million screens on my database. So never before have we had four figures, and the muscle sequencing wasn't there because her it was almost like her brain was trying to find the information and I go back to your uh comment right right at the beginning of the conversation I think and you were talking about the plantar grasp um and not enough movement at the right time and I add to that uh sentence well possibly not enough sensory information not just movement but sensory information. Uh, we we pop um, uh, children into shoes very quickly, socks and shoes, and you're not to get your socks dirty, so you have to keep your shoes on. And so the, the foot gets to feel the sock, not the ground, or the sock and the shoe, and then, you know, the ground is nowhere to be felt. Mm-hmm. And uh, baby grows, uh, uh, another thing I want to do is just go around the world chopping off the feet off baby grows. Uh, <laughs> just free feet uh, for all the information that needs to come through. Uh, 
and and I said to I said to her in the end uh, you you were displaying all the signs she was upright but with a long thoracic curve meaning there wasn't much room left for the lumbar curve uh, but she was you know fairly well stacked to all intents and purposes she looked aligned mm-hmm. uh, but and I and I said but you look as if you um, uh, you would have been uh, a toe walker, but she hadn't put it in her history. And she looked at me and she went, well, I am. Okay. It's not just I was, I am. I have to think about, I know I meant to put my heel down. So that's what I do. So she got her freedom in running because then nobody's telling her to start with her heel and she can just land where she wants to, which is on her forefoot. So her muscle sequencing came into its own when she was running. And it was just a mess when she was walking. And, and But that was promulgating the problem, which then was present still in her body when she was running, the inflammation caused by the way she was walking, spending an interminable amount of time there. So she was instantly stronger in her movements because the muscle sequencing was improved simply by uh, create giving a, a shed load of sensory information to her feet by wiping her feet on a doormat for 10 minutes. That's so interesting. That, that goes back to what you were saying about the frontal cortex earlier. When she was walking, she that's what she was trying to use. And you can't fake uh, muscle sequencing you can't face intra fake intra and intramuscular coordination you can kind of fake the the movement as a whole the macro but not not what's going on under the hood so that's uh that's so interesting when you were telling that story i was thinking to myself i bet you she can't pronate her foot or her feet um because that's i think that's where a lot of our sensory comes from that's where a lot of our grounding comes from so i was thinking maybe she's missing that you're absolutely right. So toe extensor, tendons visible throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, carefully, carefully. But of course, if you uh, if you have residual fields in your feet that cannot be tractioned with your body weight, you 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 cannot give into your feet. You cannot allow the body weight into your feet because that would lengthen that which cannot be lengthened because that's a receptive field left over uh, so you can pronate in in my world uh you can pronate cognitively all you want you won't find a solution until you until that receptive field is no longer a receptive field because once you're an adult it shouldn't be a receptive field this is the knobbly bit of the lego this the knobbly bit of the lego uh remains we have the pattern but we shouldn't be held ransom to the knobbly bit of the lego we need the shape the color the size of the lego to give us freedom of movement mm, interesting yeah the um what i don't i don't know do you know anything about posture restoration institute have you heard of those guys uh, yes I, I i have um i'm sure i've looked at that link several times some people have sent that link to me several times yes the Learning Institute in America, I, I, the only reason I bring them up here is because what they, what I, the founder, Ron, is very, very, very smart guy. I think he definitely looks at feet differently than maybe you and I do, but um, he thinks of it very much from the sensory side of it, which is obviously uh, very relevant. But the reason I bring him up is with someone like that, I, I think he would build uh, or get an orthotic built for that person. Um, so that they could sense their arch better. And that's how he thinks about 
getting someone to pronate better is actually like I think a lot of podiatrists, a lot of people in the world think about um, building an arch to stop someone pronating or putting in an orthotic or a certain shoe to stop someone pronating, whereas he thinks about, okay, I can actually get something to touch off that person's arch so now the brain can feel that arch and now it can pronate. What um what would your thoughts be there? Because I know you're you maybe fall a little bit more on the minimalist side of footwear. Maybe. Oh well, uh, I love uh, least on my feet. My feet are currently bare. Um, I spend most days completely barefoot. Um, but that's my choice. Uh, I I choose to have less. Um, I don't like my feet being enclosed and fettered. I did a just as somebody said something. So I ran on Doris with um, uh, socks on, normal socks on. And I ran on Doris with toe socks on. Um, so shoes not uh, included, just the socks. And, and the difference just with toe socks compared to socks uh, was quite extraordinary. Um, I had a longer stride. Uh, I, and I was, I was talking whilst I was running, so I couldn't think of anything. So I was distracting myself and I was blocking any how I was running. Um, and it was the same speed, but it, it was it just felt easier uh, with toe socks on. So I'm uh, I'm a fan of less. I wrote the book even with your shoes on. I was told it was a rubbish title and but it made sense to me. And I, I maintained, well, it still makes sense to me. So I'm happy with that. Uh, and and I I I point out the. For me, what is so, um, uh, it's so basic, I, it's almost, I'm embarrassed to uh, call it out in case uh, people go, for goodness sake, oh, for goodness sake, that's just obvious, isn't it? But then I get messages on YouTube saying, thank you so much for pointing that out. It hadn't even occurred to me because it's like a conditioned belief. We are grown up, uh, we, we, we are taught as children by the grown ups to uh, tie our shoes on properly. Properly is the word. And we get used to hauling on our laces and literally strapping ourselves in. And, uh, and of course, it's a rookie mistake for an ultra distance runner on a multi stage adventure the next day having the same lacing as the day before, because there will be swelling and you will be in trouble. I know because I've done it uh, with your uh, bursitis of the extensor tendons that are just stuck under the retinaculum. And it's just a whole world of pain. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a rookie mistake. And so I, I encourage everybody to just let go of their laces and and I will. I will relace, I will get down on my knees and relace people's trainers whilst they're in clinic when they're before they're getting on to Doris, because I'll be, I'll just, I'll be wincing, looking at them lace their poor, amazing feet into these, into these shoes and just pinning uh, the sole down. And of course, it's a clue. They might be pinning, the reason for the story, the, they might be pinning their, the tissue to the sock, to the shoe on the inside because they cannot bear movement, not them cognitively. Their, their sense, their, their central nervous system 
cannot bear uh, any kind of movement there because it's a tickle. It's a receptive field. So it pins it down. It's the exact same. uh, It's a different response to the same problem where people uh, who they're tiny, but you can hear them coming from a mile away because they're stomping as they land. Because if you've got a tickle, uh, but you're not thinking about this. So say somebody, um, sorry about the dogs, uh, say the uh, somebody comes and they're going to, they're going to touch your waist and you know that you're ticklish and you say, oh, just, just go in quickly. Stop, stop snapping around. Just, just get in there quick. And if they go in there quick, it, it's just about bearable. But if they go in kind of gently, it's unbearable. So we have these, uh, these situations where people pin their amazing feet into shoes with laces that are too tight um, because it's a preconditioned non-thought process of uh, that's how laces are done and then they release their feet and there are those who do it um, unconsciously because they need no movement and you can tell because they move tightly You'll watch them walk towards you with their shoes. They're really tight. They look like they're bursting out of their shoes. And their feet are, they look tight even inside their shoes. So then you go looking for the receptive field and you think, oh, yeah, that's really active. Um, And you want to give that foot freedom by uh, helping that sensory field become less sensitive. So. I would never say to anybody, you know, wear less shoe. I would always encourage them to loosen their laces. And if they needed them to be tight, to question why they need to be tight. And I would definitely test the tickles in that instance, because people think it's okay to have tickly feet. And and it is if you are teeny tiny, that's what it's there for. And it is not okay when you're a grown up. It ends, it always ends in movement adaptations which may or may not cause pain but they will definitely uh, if we come at the the question from a position of efficient movement they will uh, they will affect our efficiency of movement because there is not freedom in feet that's interesting so you think typically feet are often linked back to feet that aren't moving very much so the 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 tissue there hasn't been loaded as much, so it's just super sensitive to anything else, any stimulus that's coming in then. It's a little bit like um, I equate it to uh, what they know for uh, the piece of Lego. With that, All of these pieces of Lego have names, uh, but between disciplines, uh, the names get uh, slightly adjusted, which is always very confusing. It's like the osteos who refer to a right rotation um, and certain elements of chiropractor who re- refer to the same rotation, but from the other end of the bone. So one refers to uh, the, the body of the vertebra and the other refers to um, the, the spinous process. <laughs> and they're talking about the same rotation, but one's left and one's right. So, you know, it's all very confusing. Again, we get back to words and it becomes um, very confusing. People talk about reflex inhibition uh which makes no sense because we needed the knobbly bit 
we, the knobbly bit is the thing that got us moving in the first place. We 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 don't want to dis- discard the knobbly bit. We just don't want to be beholden to the knobbly bit for the rest of our lives. Uh, some people talk about reflex integration, but if you talk about reflexes to an adult, unless it's connected to the one in their knee, they people can get um, um, confused or defensive or um, thinking that you're going to send them crawling around the floor. So the spinal gallant uh, reflex, which enables us to twist through a 90 degree bend in the birth canal. So some of these are, um, they are uh, active even before we're born to enable us to scramble down the birth canal. We don't just get pushed out. The, the, we actually, the fetus helps itself out as well. And if for whatever reason, uh, the delivery needs to be by cesarean section. Uh, it's almost like the spinal gland doesn't get its moment. It's like, no, 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 but what about, uh, it's waiting in left field. What about me? What about me? And then there'll be this, this tickle in the waist. Uh, for always, there'll be this, that the person won't like um, uh, to wear a belt. They won't like uh, tight clothing. Uh, they'll, they won't like to sit um, upright in a dining chair, they'll want to slide away from the back of the dining chair. And it's always on a spectrum. So it's degrees of um, uh, into- complete intolerance all the way through to, well, they just kind of wiggle around a little bit. Mm. Um, uh, they, they, as a result of it, because uh, the spinal gland talks to the pelvic girdle and the shoulder girdle with the waist, of course, in between, uh, it, they might be really twitchy. Uh, and almost as if the brain is is trying to, well, where are you? Because I, you know, I never got my chance to get to know you properly down the birth canal. I'm, not, I'm just wondering where I am. And I'm now in in the um, uh, in the lockdown. It was Lord Sumpton, uh, Sumford, Sumpton, uh, the ex Lord Chief Justice, uh, and bless his heart, he was uh, sitting there wiggling all the way. And he's the one to put my hands on his shoulder and say, "There they are. There's your shoulders. There we are. There you go." And um, so it, I, I think of these things and I, it might be a story that I'm making up to help in my head understanding of it, to sort of place it in a, a, a place where I can talk about it easily. And it, it, I feel as if when there are tickles remaining in, uh, in adult feet, it's as if they didn't get enough information at the time. There just wasn't enough for the reflex, the sensory fields to go, oh, okay, thanks. Uh, I've, I've had all the information I need uh, to do enough toe-pinging to create my supination joint mechanics to go from my blob of a foot with no joints at all. We have no joints and no arches when we're born. We just have all of these little tiny bones and some tissue. And then uh, the tickles, uh, you know, a foot just comes into vision and the that's interesting. And it goes in our mouth and mummy and daddy go, this little piggy went to market, this little piggy stayed at home. And, uh, and then we, we play and we push and, uh, lots and lots and lots of sensory information. And then it's, ah, I have pinged my toes up enough. I now have supination and arches and I can toddle around now, um, with full use of my foot. Mm-hmm. rather than uh, avoiding the ball of the foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worked with adults who have uh, wiped their feet 
So to go, the relevance is um, this gentleman you were talking about who who wants to use the orthotic to present stimulation to the area. And I feel as if in some people it could work and in others it 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 might not work. In others, uh, actually, in others it wouldn't work because I know people who spend all their time pushing their feet into the spiky yoga balls and their brain is seeking information. I want information. I I can stand on the spikiest yoga ball uh, and nobody else in the yoga class can stand on spiky ball. And this is hypo. Uh, So we have hypersensitive withdrawal and we have hypo constantly seeking. And for those who are constantly seeking, they are still... um, in the same place, uh, needing pronation and not able to access pronation because because the receptive field is still active, but in a hypo way. So what we want to to do is give enough information for the body to self-regulate, the body to find its balance. We're not switching things off and switching things on. We are, are because where is the line? Who knows? It is just organizing, helping the body reorganize itself to create its own balance wherever that is. Mm-hmm. And as far as I can see, it's without a tickle. Um, and it, it, if it's going to work with something static, uh, great. And if it doesn't work, you need uh, what it is, uh, which is a some kind of um, sensory stimulation, which is a stroke rather than just the static pressure. Okay. Yeah, I really like that. It's, it's, it's such an interesting, that's a really interesting topic to me. I think over the last probably 18 months or two years, maybe longer, I've moved away a lot from the wedges that Gary uses. Um, a lot of that was just kind of be, be for our convenience sake in the beginning, when I was just working with people online and they didn't have a wedge. And I just started to coach people and I realized maybe I don't need them. And some of the time I started to move more towards actually just getting a little ankle sock or a piece of towel and asking them to place it under the immediate arch of the foot, not to push the foot up, just enough to touch it. And then when we do our pronation drills, it seems like people pronate way better because they actually know where their arch is in space rather than using a wedge to try and almost push them in that direction. It's like a, a little guide to to help them find it. So that's um, that seems to have helped. And that. I kind of took that idea a little bit from Ron, who was using the orthotic for that, but he's putting that in the shoe so they walk around with that all the time. Or I was actually te- teaching, using that tissue, using that sock to teach them how to pronate so then that they didn't need anything else when they went and moved around the world. So that's almost been my compromise over the last couple of years. And I'm, I change my mind all the time, but I'm really happy with where that's, that's helping, helping some of my people move at the moment. It is. Uh... The the question is often, are they avoiding it because they don't even know it's there? Or are they avoiding it because something else in the body is precluding them, including it? Or are they avoiding it because they can't use it? And if it's that wonderfully juicy, easy um, input of they don't even know it's there. So you stick, they, they don't know their hands are there. You stick something in their hands when they run and suddenly their upper body lights up and they run quadruped because suddenly they know their hands are there. 
and they don't plan what they do with their hands their body now knows what to do with their hands so an input to the arch of the foot suddenly they know where the arch of the foot is you they can't then plan to do anything with the arch of the foot because it's all over too quick <laughs> unless you're unless you're peeing on doris and you've got quad, quadruple numbers on your your ground contact time but it, it's all happening so quick but now the brain is like oh thank you thank you for showing me where that is i've been looking at for that for ages yeah. and sometimes that's all that's required and and if it if it needs a little bit more then then you can move from that first input it's, it's always about starting isn't it uh starting giving the body a new experience is that all they need that they need more for their body to self-organize is that so i think a lot of people when they you use uh, i said this already used the word noticing a lot and i really really like it and i think a lot of people for for some people noticing can become like neurotic very very quickly or very easily in some in some cases the way some people are coached around the awareness side of things definitely for me in the past i probably fell into that trap of like just yeah i was very years ago 10 years ago concerned or aware of my posture and my shoulders are rounded and all this and i needed to fix this i needed to fix that is that where you try and like bridge that gap with things like the lemony and stuff like that and giving giving that kind of external okay you're getting this moving you can feel this moving but it's not me it's not that cortex thing again of saying this is how you move it yes it, yes absolutely um just giving uh giving a body part that doesn't seem to understand what to do with itself give it something to do uh and then see and then sometimes it becomes a reveal uh, so uh, the, the the runner will will just circle one end of the lemony or the twig or the branch, which was R and D at the time. <laughs> I've just I, and I, we've had gloves, we've had socks. Uh, it, it just um, the lemony gives it enables me to do more things. But in the first instance, just putting something in the hands that didn't have to grip as such. There was no grip there, uh, but it's just into palm to palm and they would circle with one hand and then uh, they'd realize they just noticed oh my goodness look at that so then then the left hand would stay still and finally they get that their left hand just did not know what to do mm -hmm. and then that becomes a marker for change we don't make the left arm move because because the time would be the muscle sequencing would be a mess but we start to get the um, the idea of, ah, okay, so now, yes, okay, my right hand knows how to give the weight to my left foot, which is maybe why my left knee hurts more than my right knee, but both knees hurt. My right knee hurts because it's really hard for me to get my weight to my right knee because my left hand doesn't move, so it's not helping out. So, so when we have um, symptoms on both sides, which is, for many people can be very confusing, yes, but both sides hurt. I mean, yes, but they don't hurt the same. They don't hurt the same. And invariably, one will have started not exactly the same time as the other. I have never, ever, ever come across exactly symmetrical symptoms. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can start to understand, and then the person will start to notice 
when the other side just starts to move of its own volition because we found the reason why it was quiet in the first place. Um, uh, either it, it wants to stay adducted the whole time. It, it doesn't understand abduction uh, because of an old shoulder injury, or maybe the shoulder injury was there because they only adducted because uh, there was a movement development piece that developed um, abduction on that side, but not an adduction on this side. This is the Usain Bolt uh, and not the reverse. So they didn't have the, the opposite um, Usain Bolt. So he, yes, anyway, so um, I, wish, I wish I could have tested Usain whilst he was, you worked with him, didn't you? Oh, I did. If not, not, not. Okay. Yet. I wish I did, but I didn't. Um, no, um, in a hundred years, probably this stuff will be very easily accessed to a lot of people. And um, but I still worry about what the what the answer to the problems will be. So it'd be like, okay, you you don't move in all of these ways, but okay, you need to go and do such and such movements, and I'm not particularly confident with how they're going to address those those issues. So. Yeah. My dream is that uh, the movement issues, the, the movement questions will be answered before there's even any questions, uh, that movement will be being uh, observed and helped when we start going to school. Because that is where I feel as if uh, the person who has their movement development is taking them to here uh, and they're not particularly coordinated yet. Yeah. So they're, they're not picked for the team and they're, they're not encouraged yeah. uh, because it, it takes too much energy from uh, the teacher to encourage that person to move um, in a better way or to be able to do the things that seemingly all the other kids can do so they're they're then parked into a little box there of uh, okay just you know play game boy oh no uh, that's my age sorry game boy is ancient isn't it whatever the latest games are nintendo whatever it is so it if all of our movements every single one originates in movement development which is the stuff that happens at the beginning, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be drawn into the labelling of it because it's, it's movement development, no matter the age. Yeah. And if we can just uh, give movement, instead of PE doing, um, uh, I don't know, what do they do, age seven, football or, or something, mm. hockey or netball, Instead of those kinds of sport, or maybe along with those kinds of sport, maybe if we just had, we ran the gamut of every single piece of Lego, every single piece of Lego, we just play with them all. And then anybody who didn't get a chance to play with theirs at, the, at that time, it doesn't matter because they get to play with them now. It doesn't matter if they were a C-section baby. It doesn't matter if they outgrew their baby grows and their feet were still crammed into them. None of these things matter because it's it's not that difficult to create change because after all, a baby does it by themselves, all things being equal. So if we could just get in earlier rather than just pick the best guys who can do it already, they can because they can. Mm. And the others can't, not because, not because of anything apart from they can't yet. Yeah, yeah. I think it's getting better. It's, it's, it's getting better. They're trying to bridge that gap. But then 
seems like an adult it's going the other direction where everything has to be quantified it's just about okay you you're squatting this much now and now five k here's another five kilos here's another five kilos so i have both i'm both confident and worried at the same time that not that like and i'm a big strength guy like i work with a lot of strength people and i prescribe a lot of strength movements and i work people very hard in that regard but i think the the need for diversity of movement and yeah, just moving our bones in different ways is, is still probably missed. So, um, so yeah, uh, we'll see. Helen, where can people find you and get your book and all that stuff? I recommend your book quite a lot to people. So now's your time. Oh, to thank you. Uh, well, I'm at helen-hall.co.uk. Uh, I'm on, uh, well, I'm, I'm really rubbish on social media. I try I tried really hard, but it became twice now I've tried hard. It became like a full-time job. So all I was doing was thinking of how to be on social media and say something helpful. (laughs) uh, So um, my website is there and my book was meant so that people could help themselves. uh, And that's available on on, on my website and on Amazon. Uh, And uh, I will continue to, that my goal is to make more material that it is available to everybody rather than you having to come into clinic because uh, one at a time is the epitome of inefficiency. It's fun. Me and Doris have a great time in here playing and exploring, but it is inefficient. Uh, So the goal isn't to encourage people to come here. The goal is to create the material so that people can help themselves um, wherever they are with with the minimum of uh, equipment not requiring Doris. Doris helps me understand and learn and weaves teachings into something that seems to make sense. Uh, so if, if, if you ever meet Doris, she's wonderful, uh, but, but really she's to help me spread the word that it actually is it's easier than everybody thinks, um, so long as everybody can step out. I'll never forget, just one more story. My first Bargy lesson, I was so excited. I had been helping people get better from my rose petal poultices in my red bucket with the yellow handle for as long as I could remember. And I was excited for my first Bargy lesson. And I'm sitting there bursting. And, you know, we turn over the page, chapter one, amoeba. And I just didn't know where to be with myself. I'll never forget that day. So how to crush a young person's imagination, zooming into something that is invisible, the smallest single cell organism. It's like, okay, people, let's zoom out. Let's look at the whole picture, the big picture. Let's have a frame around which then we can put all the detail in. When I'm analyzing with Doris, we look at the person with all their skin on, the the picture of them standing still, the moving videos of them walking and running. And then when we've got some frame to put the detail in, only then do we look at the data. I love that. Big picture. I think you're doing a a great job of of spreading that message and helping people. And um, I really, really enjoyed your book. I wasn't in a place where... I didn't follow the steps as they were kind of lined out because I was playing sport at the time. Um, and it was kind of, yeah, not a, not a, not a distance runner or anything like that. Um, yeah. Just, I think it's a very, very good book. And I think all your work has been 
very helpful for me to just kind of see how you look at things and stuff like that. So thank you very much for all that. And, and all your other work to people. And um, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Okay, guys, I hope you really enjoyed that episode with Helen. I really did. I think I learned a lot as well. I think one big takeaway that we all should take away is the importance of helping people move without overthinking things. So the difference between maybe being able to feel something in your body versus focusing on, I have to move something in this way. So don't make movement too much of a frontal cortex type of thing. It's not how movement is organized in the body and the brain. Like get the arms moving, get the legs moving. People can notice something and feel something without overly analyzing how everything is happening and, and trying to get make things happening. So happen. So that's why going for a walk, that's why plyometrics, that's why going for a run, that's why setting people up in the right way in their gym movements or whatever is so important, rather than trying to use a million cues to coach someone through an exercise. That's how people become I think neurotic about their posture and exactly what's happening versus understanding what you want to get to happen and actually setting up a drill or giving them the right thing to notice rather than just forcing this kind of, this is the exact way I want you to do it down their throat. So that's a, that's a really big takeaway, I think. Um, and then lastly, don't forget to join up on DGR Interactive, our member site. Uh, great content, go- content going up there all the time. If you have about 15 minutes a week, then I can teach you biomechanics complex biomechanics broken down in the most simple way possible so a couple of the recent videos we put up i put up a video on acceleration we looked at shin drop uh dorsiflexion and foot contacts maybe why you don't need that much dorsiflexion why letting the shin move um is so is so key for acceleration uh, i put up a video on the transverse arch in the foot so i broke down what the transverse arch actually is what bones make up the transverse arch and why it's so important if you want to train pronation and supination. Most people just think about the medial arch of the foot. And um, that's that just doesn't work, for, in my opinion, too much focus on the medial arch. When you understand transverse arch, uh, then it, it kind of makes sense why focusing on the medial arch doesn't, make, doesn't work and doesn't actually help people um, because you've almost neglected what else is happening at the foot. Jake Tura did a presentation, patellar tendinopathy rehab, uh, if you're interested in patellar tendinopathy rehab for yourself or your clients, that is the best thing you should you should be looking at. And then I put up a video today on um, what was it? It was on like subjective assessment. So what questions you need to ask your clients in the initial assessment, not just for clinicians, but for coaches as well. Like if you want to find out their their goals and you want to find out what they actually think is going is going on. Um, then these are the questions that you need to be asking. So there's about five questions there, and it helps people like really understand what's going through their client's head, not just the not just the simple answers that people are giving you. Okay, what do you think is wrong? I have knee pain. Okay, how long have you had it? Six months. We we dive much deeper than that, but it doesn't take much more time. It's just asking the right questions. So I pop that up and then I'm gonna go into I think on Thursday, uh today's Wednesday. Yeah, tomorrow I'm gonna to put up another video on gait specific stuff so should you be training pronation with more hip internal or hip external rotation so all that stuff going up every week a lot of these are requests from the members we have 550 members i think now and um, they're just requests from members going up and i'm trying to help them as much as we can 15 20 minutes a week that's all you need and by the end of the year how smart could you be so that's it from me hope you enjoyed the podcast go and sign up for dgr interactive and i will see you soon with a new episode